have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2, and we'll be looking at particularly in verse, verse 11 this morning. John Calvin is noted for using the analogy of an idol factory to describe the uh, a human, hu- human's uh, propensity to create idols of the heart. Uh, We see this even in the lives of young children. A a child sees a a toy that they want. They they decide that they want it because only that toy can bring them satisfaction, happiness, and fulfillment. And and then you'll see the child do whatever it takes to to get that particular toy. Um, He will grab it away from one of his siblings. He will even look to mom and dad to see if they're not looking. And if you told them not to touch it, they will look for ways to go touch it when you're not looking or sometimes even as you're staring at them. Not quite understanding, like you're disobeying, you're defying my voice. He will even, if he's in public, he'll even yell and scream, sometimes at home, but especially in public, right? You've seen those those kind of um, incidences. Maybe your own children have, have pulled those on you in the store. They wanted something. They asked for it. You said no. And they just began throwing a fit. Right? They began trying to manipulate you in order to get what they want. Right? They, they will even do this knowing that you will discipline them. So this has nothing to do with whether you're faithful in disciplining them or not. It, it's just revealing the, the heart of the child. They, they, in a sense, they, they look at the discipline and they judge that that prize that they want is worth the punishment of discipline. Now, it's interesting that when that child gets what they long for, how long does that actually make them happy? Right? Pretty short, isn't it? A few hours, maybe a day or two. Before long, they discover a new interest and something else um, is what they uh, want to want to uh, use to, to satisfy their, their longings and desires. Now, this, this morning, I, I'm not picking on children. Uh, it is uh, their behavior is so endemic to our society. I thought I would use that as an illustration. Adults do the very same things. We just become more sophisticated in, in how we do it. You know, we're not so blatant and obvious, usually. Um, we're, we're much more diplomatic and discreet. But the hard attitudes that drive these behaviors are very similar to what we see in small children. Now, thinking of Christ, particularly turning on what we think about Christ, many people treat Jesus just like the other idols of their hearts. When their Jesus uh, doesn't meet their expectations or desires, they bend and twist him into a Jesus of their own liking of, and in their own making. There used to be uh, some, maybe there are that come back, but in, and as a child there was these toys that you could just like bend them whichever way you wanted to and they would stay that way. So that's, that's kind of the analogy that I'm, that I'm thinking about, like Gumby. I think that, that was the, the name of it. Right? You could just bend them whichever way you wanted to. Um, many, many people in our culture today just do not ha- know how to deal with objective truth in fact they reject objective truth in order to bring the desires of their heart to life they want something to be true and and so they've defaulted to uh, well i can have my truth and you can have your truth and those truths even though they look like they contradict they're just kind of relative so they don't contradict you can you can do believe what you want to believe and i can believe what i want to believe now this leads people to rejecting the Jesus of the Bible for a much more likable Jesus, or at least in their definition of likable Jesus. Now, some of you may be thinking how crazy all of this sounds, and indeed, it does sound crazy, but no, no crazier than our society that wants to tell, a, um, affirm a man as a woman and a woman as a man, and just all the... All the, the um, leads to it's the same phenomena that the rejecting of objective truth but i want us to consider that without the grace of god in our lives we would be thinking just the same way we're not any better than than our society the only reason you think it's crazy is because god has opened your eyes to objective truth he's given you grace to see objective truth and even unbelievers who recognize some form of objective truth that's a that's evidence of god's common grace working in their lives and in our society. 
But but just know that that what I'm saying is is evident all around us, and and I don't have to go to like New York or California to find an example of this. Let me give you an example from right here in Little Medina. A pastor of a local United Church of Christ congregation kind of vocalizes the spirit of the age of which I'm talking about um, in, a, in an article that the Medina Weekly News ran this week. And I'll just quote from that a little bit. If there is one thing, and I, I won't use this name because it's not important. If, if there is one thing this pastor finds peculiar about his chosen denomination, it is a lack of identity and a wealth of ambiguity. Think about that. That's what he's holding up as like, that's the jewel. Um, this lack of identity and a wealth of ambiguity in how to worship and serve. I mean, just come any way you want to. Again, I'll quote from the article. It's a gray area. They say that. It's a gray area where this pastor, a 40-year-old millennial dad who loves rock and roll, practices yoga, and loathes discrimination, seems to thrive as a spiritual facilitator and a student of the Gospels. Right? Just let that sink in, what I'm saying. The paper is quoted him on this very issue. So I'm not quoting the author of the article now. I'm going to quote him. I can't understand dream theater. By the way, I didn't even know what that was. I had to go look it up or who it is. It's a band. Uh, metal band. I can't understand dream theater or maybe a grunge band. I'm not an expert in music. So he says, I can't understand dream theater. I'd rather hang out with Nirvana. I don't understand polyrhythmic tools or why a song needs to be eight minutes long. Give me the source riff, the DYI punk rock of congregationalism. That's what I love. And that's what Jesus is to me. That's a pastor. A spiritual facilitator, a student of the Gospels? I think not. Sadly, there are many people today who are just like him. They've made a Jesus to their own liking. They imagine Jesus as a person who likes what they like and who loves what they love. In so doing, they have fashioned their Jesus, with a lower J, into an idol in much the same way that the artisans of the Apostle Paul's day fashioned statues that, that served as physical idols of worship. It's no different. Use that analogy. They, they've just taken, you know, the, the, the artisans of old would take a, a piece of wood or, or a piece of metal and they would very intricately carve it how they think that that particular God with a lower G looked, that they would worship. Our people in the United States are typically more, at least exterior, on the exterior, more, more sophisticated than that. We don't typically bow down to idols, although there are lots of cultures in the United States, and there are some that actually do that here in the United States. But in our community, we typically don't see those. We, these are the idols of the heart that, that Calvin spoke about that are so prolific in our lives. And people have made an idol that they call Jesus. And they think that's the biblical Jesus. But understand, if you have created a Jesus of your own making, you don't have the real Jesus. Without the real Jesus, you don't have the real gospel. Without the real gospel, you don't have the power of God unto salvation. And thus, if someone comes proclaiming this other Jesus or another Jesus, which is contrary to the Jesus of the scriptures, this person falls under the same condemnation that God places upon those who preach another gospel. That is, they are to be accursed. We boldly and without apology proclaim the Jesus of the scriptures. And let us be reminded of the, of the objective truth that God gave us in the scriptures. And uh, just as a way of reminder, I want to read the following statement that was taken directly from our doctrinal statement regarding objective truth. We teach that the Bible is God's written revelation to man, and thus the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary, that is, it, they are inspired equally in all parts, to the plenary word of God. 
We teach that the Word of God is an objective propositional revelation, verbally inspired in every word, absolutely inerrant in the original documents, infallible and God-breathed. We teach the literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture, which affirms the belief that the opening chapters of Genesis present creation in six literal days. We teach that the Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice. The only infallible rule. Thus, beloved, we dare not, at the risk of preaching a false gospel, create a Jesus of our own imagination and likings. We must preach the Jesus of the Bible. We must make sure that the Jesus we are putting our hopes and trust in is the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Scriptures, and not some Antichrist. You know, we think of Antichrist as the Antichrist with a capital A, but the Scriptures say that many Antichrists are already among us at the lower A. Just means taking the place of, right? So these fake Jesuses are taking the place of the real Jesus in people's mind. And so while there are many scriptures that we could look at this morning, I want to direct your attention to the descriptions of Jesus given by an angelic messenger to the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth in Luke 2.11. And uh, I'm going to read verses 1 to 14 just to give us the context. Um, again, it just, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Luke 2 and I'll read verses 1 to 14. Now in those days a decree went forth, went out from Caesar Augustus, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from heaven, from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Beloved, I want you to to see very clearly this morning that the, the real Jesus is Savior, He is Christ, and He is God. These three descriptions are going to guide our, our discussion this morning. The first uh, description given by the angel to the shepherds is that a Savior has been born. Jesus is the Savior. Uh, The baby born in Bethlehem was and is Savior. Now, notice in the text that the shepherds were frightened by the angel's appearance to them. This is a pretty normal experience for seeing a real angel of God. So anybody that said they've seen an angel and it's, they get all the, the warm, fuzzy feelings and warm warmness and even uh, those that have said they claim to have been to heaven and back and have all these fuzzy feelings of warmth and just comfort, they've seen a devil or the devil himself or a demon. They have not seen a holy angel. So the, the normal, typical pattern is that when a holy angel appears, you become frightened. And that, that occurs time and time again. For example, Zacharias, 
right? A, a priest functioning and, and going into the Holy of Holies was frightened by an angel of the Lord that appeared to him to announce that he would have a son by Elizabeth and they would call his name John. Zacharias's fright is very clear. It's evident in the description of him that Luke gives in, in chapter 1, verse 12. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. And then notice the angel's response in verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. Even Mary was frightened by the angel Gabriel's appearance to her about 10 months prior to the night that we just read about, the night of Jesus' birth. This is seen by the fact that Gabriel had to tell Mary, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid for you have found favor with God. Now, the, the way the wording makes it sound like maybe Mary had done something to, to earn that favor. That's, that's not at all true. It's not what the text is saying. It's that grace, God's grace was upon her. Right? And that's why she didn't need to be afraid. But she was afraid. And just like, again, the typical pattern is when an angel that has been in God's presence comes with a message to somebody in the scriptures, the first response is that of being afraid. So if we read that the shepherds were afraid, that, that would be pretty typical. That would be normal. We would, we would anticipate that. But, but look at what actually is, is said about them at the end of verse 9. It's not that they were frightened. It was what? They were what? Terribly frightened. Why? And this is the, the word terribly is the Greek word mega. You can say it's they're mega frightened. We get that. The word means you know very large, great. Um, the angel, uh, the angel's appearance accounts for the shepherd's fright, but not for their mega fright, for being terribly frightened. What what was it? Read verse nine again. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. We understand that would strike fear into anybody who. Fears God. Look at the next phrase. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. So what's the cause of the mega fear? Of the being terribly frightened? It's the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is a reference to the Shekinah glory of God. That is the glory of God made visible to human uh, eyes. God's, God always has glory, but it doesn't always make His glory visible. The glory of the Lord appeared to Israel at Mount Sinai. In Exodus twenty four seventeen. we read, And the eyes of the sons of Israel, and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of God was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. You can read that text. They're pretty fearful. They don't really want to go up onto Mount Sinai. They're more than happy to let Moses go, right? They don't want to, because of that, that Shekinah glory of God. Moses asked to see the full glory of God. That request was denied by God. Since sinful man cannot see God and live, but, but God sheltered him in the cleft of a rock while his glory passed by. The glory of God was manifested in the tabernacle above the mercy seat and below the cherubim on top of the ark. We talked about that some in a previous message. But that's where the glory of God was made manifest in the tabernacle. Read about that in Leviticus 16, number 7. The glory of the Lord appeared at the dedication of the temple which Solomon built. We read in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11. It happened that while the priests came from the holy place... The cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then Ezekiel describes a departure of the glory of the Lord from the tabernacle and from Jerusalem. He sees visions of the glory of God uh, coming up out of the temple, hovering above Jerusalem and eventually departing. That's the last that Israel had ever seen of the glory of God until this night. Hundreds of years of silence. The silence is broken by, by 
John the Baptist's voice, but the silence of the glory of God, that the visible manifestation of the glory of God was, was broken on this night. The shepherds were witnessing the return of the glory of God to Israel. And yet the glory of the God, the, the glory of the Lord accompanied an angel of the Lord and brought the shepherds good news of great joy, not news of judgment. And so the angel tells them, don't be afraid. I haven't brought judgment, but I've brought good news. In fact, good news of great joy. And what is that good news of great joy? A savior has been born. The angel's proclamation of good news of great joy provides three descriptions of this very special baby boy who has just been born. The first of these descriptions is that he is Savior. Savior is a word we familiar with. It means redeemer or deliverer. Why is this such good news of great joy that a Savior had been born? From long ago, God promised his people a Savior. You could say that ever since the fall of man in the, in the Garden of Eden, God has been promising his people that he would provide a Savior. This child fulfills all of those promises of God. This child carries the rightful title of Savior. Even though he had not yet accomplished that salvation, he had not yet accomplished God's plan of redeeming his people by fulfilling the law's requirements, by showing them who God is, by dying for their sins on the cross or being raised in newness of life. All these events lie in the future, but there is good as done. And God gives this baby, through the angel, gives this baby the title of Savior. The promised Messiah. The one who would save them. The, the English text actually adds a, a small uh, the article, uh, a Savior, to smooth out the translation. But realize that that's not in the, in the Greek. Uh, and it's, un, and it's, under, it's okay to put an article there before Savior. As long as we understand what the angel's saying. He's not saying there is a Savior as if he's one of a multitude or even a few different Saviors. The, the good news of great joy is that the Savior, although the definite article isn't used in that text, the implication is he's pointing to the Savior, the one that is that it, the Jews were waiting for. This is the Savior. No one else is given the title of Savior by God or by the angels. And since the angels were sent with this message, uh, surely it was God's message, not theirs. Jesus is Savior, for his name implies that. We're told that in other Gospels. His, you know, the angel declared to, to Joseph, his name shall be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this is good news of great joy for the first time in history and the final time in history, the people have been given someone who can really save them from their sins. They've, they've been given deliverers who delivered them in a temporal sense in a short period of time. They've been given all these different sacrifices of animals. They were to sacrifice. But scripture says the blood of bulls and goats cannot remove sins. Those were just precursors looking um, toward the ultimate sacrifice of Christ himself. So anyone who believes in Jesus, in him, can, can say, uh, and then it can say that Jesus is their savior, and that he took their, he took their sins upon himself and died for them. You could say that, that they now have the righteousness of God in them. That because Jesus is savior, he not only takes our sin, but he gives us the very thing that we're lacking as well. And this is described beautifully by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This baby Jesus, who is Savior, is the instrument of God's fulfillment of his promise to redeem his people from their sins. And that's why we worship Jesus with great joy. Great joy for all the people. He takes away sin. Understand that Jesus came to save sinner came to save sinners. He saves us from the punishment that our sins deserve. He saves us from the power of sin and he saves us from the continued polluting effects of sin. It's not that we don't struggle with sin 
Now we still sin, but now the Lord works in our life to, to, re, to pull us out of that. We don't stay there. He grows us and changes us like Him. Understand, the Lord's work of being our Savior encompasses all these things. Not just saving us from the penalty of sin, but saving us from the power and saving us from the continued pollution of sin. Uh, don't miss the significance of the title of Savior. He is your Savior. Uh, Dr. MacArthur explains that, and I'll just quote him here. He says, the description of Jesus' Savior is an apt one. Since the reason he was born was to save his people from their sins. That obvious truth is often obscured in contemporary presentations of the gospel. Too often, Jesus is presented as one who will rescue people from unfulfillment in their marriages, families, or jobs, from a debilitating habit they cannot overcome on their own, or from a sense of purposelessness in life. But while relief in those areas may be a byproduct of salvation, it is not its primary intent. Mankind's true problem of which those issues are only symptoms, is sin. Everyone is guilty of breaking God's holy law and deserves eternal punishment in hell. Those true, the true gospel message is that Jesus Christ came into the world to rescue people from sin and guilt, not psychological, artificial guilt feelings, but true, God-imposed guilt that damns to hell. Unquote. So Jesus is... The one, the Savior, who can redeem us from our sins. If your worldview has no category for sin, or if you define sin differently than the Scriptures, then your view of Jesus is uh, likely not biblically accurate. It isn't biblically accurate. And you you have, at least in part, a, a fake Jesus. And if you have a, a fake Jesus, at least in part, you don't have the real Jesus. Um. Just to get a glimpse of this, of what the Lord does for us, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm going to read just a few verses from there, being at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolatries, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you, sorry, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. It is Jesus who accomplishes that redemption. He is truly Savior. But that wasn't the only description the angel told the shepherds about. The next one was that he is Christ. So the second, we're going to look at the, really, the, you can look at how the, the passage flows. The second and third descriptions uh, in, found in verse 11 really uh, inform who this, and further identify who this Savior is, there's been born, born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Who is Christ the Lord? And, and really, it's interesting the way that the Greek text is organized. It emphasizes um, not the city. The city is mentioned, but it emphasizes that today there's been born for you. I'll just, in, in a rough translation, I'll put it this way. For today has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord in the city of David. The city of David is just pointing them. It's just mentioned uh, to fulfill Scripture, but also to help point the shepherds where to find this baby. And notice the phrase, who is. This, this again f tells us that these descriptions that come next about Christ and Lord uh, fulfill or further identify who this Savior is. This Savior is, is Christ. And, and the word Christ is a translation of the Greek word Christos, Christos is related to the idea of one who is anointed. Um, one scholar explains the term Christus was originally an adjective, anointed, that developing in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, into a substantive, uh, that is a noun, an, an anointed one, then developing still further into a technical generic term, the anointed one. In the intertestamental period, that is the period between the Old and New Testaments, it developed further into a technical term, 
referring to the hoped-for anointed one, that is, a specific individual. In the New Testament, the development starts there, and, and so it is used in the Gospels and then develops in Paul to mean virtually Jesus' last name. Now, it's, it's not his last name. It's a, it's a title, but, but many people think that it's his last name because of how it's used, and that's why the author referenced it or described it that way. Thus, when we read that in Luke 2, the term Christos is used to describe the newly born Savior, the author, Luke, fully intends his readers to understand that the child is the hoped-for anointed one that the Jewish nation was anticipating. The Old Testament term for the hoped-for anointed one is Messiah. The promise of the Messiah, the anointed one, is found throughout the Old Testament, beginning at Genesis 3.15, with the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. One specific reference uh, from the book of Daniel will suffice for our study today to, to show the connection or the, the anticipation uh, and promise of the, of the Messiah. I'm going to read from Daniel 9, being at verse 25. This records the message that God sent to Daniel through the angel Gabriel. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So without taking the time to kind of unpack the verse, notice that it's a promise of the Messiah, the one that would come, this this prince, right, who we know as King Jesus. And, and thus, as we think through the angelic message given to the shepherds, we need to understand that the angel, who once again could have been could have been Gabriel, he's not identified in Luke 2, but he could have been Gabriel, because Gabriel was used so many times by God to deliver these kind of messages. So that when this angel came, he, in his message, he intended the shepherds to make the connection between this hoped-for and promised anointed one, that is the Messiah, with the baby whose birth was accompanied by the glory of the Lord. He wanted the shepherds to fully understand this baby was the Messiah, the one they had been looking for. And it's interesting to note that scholars translate the Greek word Christos sometimes as Christ, and other times as Messiah. And, and these, these, these translations almost have a synonymous meaning in the New Testament. Let's look at just some examples. Um, for example, in Matthew 1.16, I'll read that to you. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Right there, your Bible will read Messiah, but it's the same Greek term, Christos. In Matthew 2.4, look at, uh, you see that, I'll just read it to you. Gathering... All, Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. That's Herod. Wanted to know where is the Messiah going to be born. And they get the location right. They tell them in order to tell the wise men, Bethlehem. They knew of this anticipated one, this Messiah who was to come. Then in Matthew 16, 16, in a passage uh, we know well, Jesus asked his disciples who he was, what What did they say that he is, who he is? Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So in in all those texts is the same Greek word. Sometimes it's translated Messiah, sometimes it's translated as Christ. So these terms are synonymous, pointing to the fact that it's the anointed one prophesied in the Old Testament. And, and this is made very clear to us in the Gospel of John. Uh, turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Look at verse 1. John chapter 1, verse uh, 35. I'm going to read that. But I want you to pay particular attention to verse uh, 41. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 35. And the next day, John was standing, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? 
And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. They stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, Look, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Beloved, understand uh, that that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, Continue on with me. Look at John 4. In John 4, verse 25, we, we read this. In fact, I'll, I'll just pick, um, I'll start right in. Look at verse 25. This is the, the incident of, of Jesus encountering the woman at the well. And Jesus exposed her a lot of sin in her life, things that uh, he would not have known unless somebody had told him and nobody had told him. So, she just she responds to him saying this way in verse 25. I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And it's kind of interesting that she's making the connection of Christ, Messiah. And, and notice, just look at verse 39, if you will. Notice how the city responds. Her, the, you know, what she's saying um, I guess look at verse 29 first. Verse 29, she says, verse 29, she says, um, sorry, wrong, wrong. I'm in the wrong place. You're probably in the right place. Verse 29, she says, she's talking to the villagers or Samaritan village. Come see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? So the first reference, I got ahead of myself, the first reference is just her making the connection between the Christ and Messiah. Verse 29 is her seeing that this person who told her things about herself that that he wouldn't have known unless he was God. She's making the the connection. She's beginning to make the connection that he is Christ. She goes to the village and bears testimony and saying, this man told me things that he shouldn't have known. He's not the Christ, is he? But he is. But, but look at, skip ahead in verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the Samar- because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me of the things, all the things I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them and he stayed there two more days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. And notice, we, we, the first title that the angel gave was Savior. Second was Messiah. Here, the Samaritan woman and the Samaritan village is reasoning. They're coming to the, the conclusion that, he, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. And therefore, he must be what? Savior of the world. The Christ is the Savior. You can't separate these. They're separate descriptions but they go together. They can't, these titles cannot go to two separate people. The Christ is the Savior. So the angel's good news of great joy was that Jesus is Savior, that Jesus is the Christ. And yet there's one more significant description of Jesus that I want to, to look at this morning that's found in the announcement of the angel. So if you go back to Luke 2, 11, you'll see that that last description is probably the most profound for in it, we are to understand that the angel announced to the shepherds that Jesus is God. The declaration there, translated for us, the Lord, should be associated with the divine name of God, Yahweh. I want to show that to you. So the text of Luke 2.11 uses the Greek word kurios, which we're familiar with. It's typically translated as Lord or Master, depending on the context. In New Testament times, slaves would use the term to refer to their master. But that's not the only place it was used. The term was also used to show respect and esteem to someone who is in a position of leadership or authority. It conveys the idea of submission to that authority. And it is in this sense that Sarah called Abraham Lord in 1 Peter 3.6. So, let's pause here a minute and ask the question. 
Does the angel's words in Luke 2, the Lord, mean that the shepherds should understand that the baby born in Bethlehem is Savior Christ and Lord in the sense of master, having authority to lead? Well, we know that's certainly true of Jesus. Uh, the New Testament affirms this many times. Some, just some examples, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace through God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.11. And not only this, but we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Romans 15.30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Colossians 1.3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. James 2.1, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ as an attitude with an attitude of personal favoritism. 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we also see that the word kurios is is used in an ultimate sense as a title for God. Uh, we see this in Acts 17.23. The Apostle Paul, speaking to those in Athens, declares the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So there, it's certainly very clearly, Paul is clearly telling those in Athens, those who did not know God, that that God is Lord of heaven and earth in an ultimate sense. Uh, Peter calls uh, Jesus Lord of all in Acts 10.36. And thus it's theologically correct. And it's right for us to think of Jesus as Lord in this sense, that he is, he is master over all. Um, yet it seems that there's something more that Luke wants us to understand from Luke 2.11. I propose to you, and I, I'm convinced by the text, that the use of the term kurios in Luke 2.11 is a specialized use, what we call a technical term. It's, in, in fact, being used in a way that's like a name. It's, it, is, it does mean master, lord, but in a superlative sense, not just as reference to God, but using the very name of God. Uh, the term kurios was used in the intertestamental period in the Septuagint, uh, as a translation of the covenantal name of God. If you would, for a moment, turn to Exodus 3. I want to show you something. It's important for you to see this. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus 3, and looking at verse 7. So this is the account of Moses encountering God at the burning bush. And we're just going to jump into the context at this point. Look with me at, um, actually I'll begin at verse I begin at verse uh, 2. Sorry, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him. And, and keep in mind, as I'm reading, your ears can't distinguish the difference between uh, a capitalized Lord and a lowercase Lord. So you have to look in your Bibles to know which I'm talking about. That's the advantage, I think, of the Legacy Standard Bible that actually translates the covenantal name of God as Yahweh. Even though we don't know if that's the right pronunciation or not, at least it helps the readers or listeners to hear a difference in the terms. So this is the covenantal name of God. So the angel of the Lord, that is Yahweh, appeared to him in the blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Now look at verse uh, 7. The Lord, the Yahweh, said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Pezzarite, uh, Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the, the cry of the sons of Israel have come to me, Furthermore, I've seen their oppression, which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And look at Moses uh, contends, uh, saying, Who am I? But jump down to verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, 
the God of your fathers has sent me. Now, now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is that covenantal name of God. God reveals his name as as uh, Yahweh. Again, we don't know the correct pronunciation. That's, we're kind of guessing at that at this point. But this is the covenantal name of God. Right? Now, most of our English translations use, as I mentioned, the, the capitalized Lord to reference the, uh, the covenantal name of God in the Old Testament. But when we turn to the New Testament, and I want you to see this, the, the, the way that that covenantal name is relayed to us in the New Testament doesn't get that capitalized sense because it's the same Greek word. There's not a different Greek word for the covenantal name of God. It's the same Greek word, kurios. So it, how this, how this uh, came about is that when the Jews translated the Old Testament scriptures into Greek, that, it, that is the Septuagint, they used the word kurios to translate the passages in the Old Testament um, where, for the covenantal name of God. One author I was reading uh, explains this in a helpful way, so I thought I'd just quote him. He says, In the period between the Testaments, Jews stopped pronouncing the name of God and substituted it with the title Adonai, which means Lord or Master. That's a Hebrew term. This practice is reflected in the Greek translation of the First Testament. He's referring to the Old Testament, the Septuagint, where the letters YHWH is consistently rendered as Kurios, Lord, which translates Adonai rather than transliterating, transliterating the name represented by Yahweh. This practice carries over into the New Testament where quotations of text in the New Testament are consistently render the letters YHWH as Kurios and into tra English translations as Lord. See, in the intertestamental period, the period where the Jews... Um, there's a silence. They were afraid to even say the name of God. And so they took God's name, Yahweh, took all the vowels out of it so you couldn't say it, used the vowels from the Hebrew term Adonai, and came up with something that you could say, if you say it, you would say Jehovah. So you hear that Jehovah a lot, but that's actually a man-made term. That's not how God revealed himself. And so when we go to the New Testament, we see that the Jews who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek use the word kurios for the covenantal name of God. And I read to you Exodus 3. I did that intentionally um, because I, I want you to see that, that in places, that's exactly what they did. And I'll show you examples. Um, go to Psalm 110 for a minute. Look at verse 1, Psalm 110. And look at verse 1. It's a passage that uh, you are probably familiar with. It says, The Lord, notice how it's spelled, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see the difference in the spelling? So it's the Hebrew term Yahweh. That's the first one. And then it's the Hebrew term Adonai is the second occurrence. And that's, that, that accounts for the difference in, in how it's not spelling, but how it's capitalized. Right? So that's what our English Bibles are trying to communicate to us. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your footstool, make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, if you would turn to Matthew. I know we're turning a lot, but it's important here. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. The New Testament often quotes from the Old Testament or paraphrases the, the Old Testament. Here it's a, a quotation. Matthew uh, 22 verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Then he said to them, verse 43, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So notice uh, your Bible probably has verse 44 all in capitals. And the reason they do that is to try to help you understand that it's a quotation from the Old Testament. So again, you notice that the whole idea of capitalized Lord in the Old Testament doesn't carry the same meaning as capitalized Lord in the New Testament. And this here. But understand that in the in our text of Matthew, the Lord said to my Lord, both those words, Lord, are curios. But one refers to his name. One refers to him as master or Lord. And these are not exactly the same things. Pretty interesting. We see this the same thing in Deuteronomy. I won't turn, we won't turn there, but you can jot it down. Deuteronomy 6, 6, 6 and Mark 12, 29. I'll read those to you. Deuteronomy 6, 6 says this. You, you may have it memorized. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, is our Lord. Yahweh is one. Right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Both those, both those uses are using the covenantal name of God. In Mark 12, 29, in response to a question as to which commandment is the foremost of all, Jesus says this. The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And both times, it's the Greek word, kurios. So again, it just shows you that even the Holy Spirit worked to uh, indicate that the word kurios is that covenantal name of God. So back to Luke 2.11. What we see in Luke 2.11 is the angel announcing that this baby is Lord. English text uses uh, the Lord on there. But it's using the word curios not just to indicate that Jesus is master of all in the sense of like Adonai, but he's using that Greek word curios in the sense that this is Yahweh. This is God. That's significant. The author Luke and the Holy Spirit as a giver of scripture wants us to understand that baby born in Bethlehem as helpless as he looked at the time in his mother's arms was God. Emmanuel. We know that. It's, it, the text of, two, of, of Luke 2.11 is just another scripture that points us to the fact that Jesus is God. Not a demigod, not uh, something between God and, and man in that sense, but God himself, God of very God. You know, there are, some, there are some texts of Scripture that just shout to us that Jesus is God. John 10.30 would be one of those. There are others we could go to. I, I would argue that Luke 2.11 is a text that whispers to us. Why does it whisper? Because of how it's translated, and and in English, the the, the kind of, even in the Greek mixing of the of the term kurios between the meaning of master and the covenantal name of God, you have to pay attention. You have to be a good student of Scripture, looking at these things. And and even recently was something that, like I didn't learn this in seminary. This is something that I recently, maybe I heard it in seminary, uh, but it was something that just kind of leaped out of the text as I studied this. Jesus was indeed God. And if Jesus was God, you would expect him to do things that God could do, like um, that he they actually would claim to be God. You know, there are people that says Jesus never claimed to be God. And if they say that, you can look at them in the eye and say, you don't know your Bible very well, do you? Because he certainly did. And John 8.58, Jesus said to those who are challenging his authority and, and talking, talking about his history, he I just again to be uh, uh, get right to the point. John 8.58, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. What was he doing? He was claiming to be God. And the Jews full well understood his claim because they did what? They picked up rocks to stone him. Because they thought he had just blasphemed the name of God. 
If Jesus was indeed God, we would expect Jesus to have authority to forgive sins. Guess what? He did. Mark 2.5 records one such occurrence where people brought a paralytic to him. And he said, seeing, seeing their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And, and that whole incident, if you go read it, it's really just amazing in, in the fact that actually Jesus says, get up, rise and walk. And the Jews kind of challenge him because it's done on the Sabbath. They challenge him and say, you know, who are you? In a sense, Jesus is saying, get up, rise and walk as evidence that is fact that his sins are forgiven. And later he says, what is it? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up, rise and walk? Well, it's easy, easy to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Well, anybody can say that. Catholic priests say that every day. Your sins are forgiven. Anybody can say that to you. But how do you know that it's true? There's no proof. So Jesus said to this man, get up, rise and walk. There's your proof. You want proof that God forgives sins, that Jesus forgives sins, that he is God, that as God, he forgives sins. He caused the man to walk. If Jesus was indeed God, we would expect Jesus to have authority over the demons. Well, guess what he did? Many passages, but one uh, I'll mention is Luke 4, Luke 4, 31 through 37. And and just uh, reading that text to you, Luke 1, 4 through 30, beginning of verse 31. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. And in the synagogue, in the synagogue, you would think that they wouldn't. That this, this shows you how, how spiritually blind the Jews were. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice. He wasn't revealed until Jesus came into the synagogue. Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And as other pastors have noted, why did Jesus let the demon throw him down one more time? So the people would know something significant just happened. The man got up and it was in his right mind. Jesus had power over demons. Jesus had power over Satan. We read about that in, in verse uh, 14 of Hebrews 2. Therefore, since the children of the f- are sorry, since therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus had that power. Power over Satan. Power over demons. Not to mention anything of all the the people that he healed. Power over sicknesses. And he claimed to be God. Know this about Jesus. Jesus is Savior. To save you from your sins. Again, not just the consequences of sin, but the power of sin, the contamination of sin. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He's the one prophesied of old, the one that God promised. He is the anointed one. And that's, again, why he is Savior. And Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. In the future, for all those that have believed in him, someday you're going to go to heaven. You're going to see your Lord and God. Your faith will be sight. And when you look upon the face of Jesus, not his physical features, mind you, but, but when you look at who he is, what he says, how he acts, you are seeing God. God's spirit. You will not see God. You'll see the glory of God. But in Jesus, we see God. This is the Jesus of Christmas. This is the Jesus who saves, who redeems, who fulfills prophecy, and who is God. Anything less is a fake Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, our Lord, Yahweh, thank you for giving us of yourself. Lord, as the second person of the Trinity And yet as a whole one God, only one God, you gave us of yourself. 
You became man to take our place, to die for us, to be our Savior, in fulfillment of all the prophecies about the Messiah, the Christ. And, Lord God, You are God, a very God. Lord Jesus, You are Yahweh. And we look to You to save us, to redeem us, to guide us, to shepherd us as the Good Shepherd. And Lord God, help us to proclaim Christ to our family as we meet with them, or to neighbors and friends. And Lord, just ask that you give us opportunities to proclaim the true biblical Christ. And that you would use these proclamations, as feeble as they are, Lord, to draw sinners to yourself, to save them and redeem them. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.